Shalom. Welcome to the New Millennium Edition of the Torah Teaching. This audio program is produced by Lion and Lamb Ministries and is presented by Monty Judah. If you would turn in your Bibles now to the book of Numbers, to the last two portions, the last two teachings in Numbers called Matot, Tribes. This is a double portion in Masay, which is Journeys, and it's in Numbers chapter 30. Uh, through the end of the book of Numbers. So turn with me there to Numbers chapter 30. There's actually several topics that come into this that we're going to mention. I won't be able to go through the detail of each of these, but I just want to overview what this double portion will cover. It covers vows, a particular war against Midian, which involved 12,000 of the sons of Israel, a story specifically of the two tribes, Reuben and Gad, and how it came that they chose the particular part of land, of part of Israel that they gained as their inheritance. The the issue of the journeys in the wilderness, in other words, the stages and the camping places that Israel camp, and there's a teaching with it. The commandment to live in the land, God's definition of the cities of refuge, and finally the inheritance of the land through the Father's line, the commandment of inheritance through the Father's line. Now, I'm only going to briefly mention some of these, but we'll home in on a couple of them in particular as part of our teaching for this Shabbat. If you'll note with me now from Numbers chapter 30 and verse 1, it says, Then Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the sons of Israel, saying, This is the word which the Lord has commanded. And the word tribes there is a very interesting word because it's actually a word that actually means can mean staff. Now, these are the staffs. And actually, the head of a tribe would have a staff. If you remember Moses, when he led the children of Israel, used a staff, not a sword or a scepter, but a shepherd's staff. And so when it talks of the tribes, the heads of the tribes, it's referring to that central staff that would be the head of that tribe. So they just equate, well, he's talking about the heads of the tribes because their symbol would have been a staff uh, uh, to indicate leadership. And then it begins a very, very specific instruction in which that it says, if a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. And the word vow there is also another interesting Hebrew word. Now, we use, we translate the word, Hebrew word, neder, uh, as vow. Some would translate it as oath or swearing something. But uh, most uh, in English, the closest word that we can find to it is a vow. Now, as as a type of speech... I need to make sure that we all have the same definition of what a vow is as compared to other manners of speech. Most of you are familiar with that when you got married, you had marriage vows. In other words, the manner of speech that is done at the wedding ceremony is a very special kind of speech. It's not like a promise or a contract. It's a vow. And as a result of speaking the vow, the state of marriage comes into being. It is the only form of speech in which that we literally speak in the future. And and we actually grab the future and we bring it down to the present and we create 
in our present time a reality based on those words we spoke into the future. And in the case of a marriage vow, as soon as the man says that he vows to his new wife and the new wife vows to her husband, in effect, the state of marriage has been created. Essentially, the minister, like in my capacity, all I'm doing is acknowledging having witnessed and heard the state of vows and making the declaration over them that on the basis of their vows and the sealing of their vows, the state of marriage exists. And all of the audience who witnessed these vows accept that the state of marriage exists at that moment. In other words, by their spoken word, they've changed the reality of the world around us. And in fact, this vow is likened to the same way that God when he created in Genesis 1, it says he spoke and things came into being. He spoke and there was light. He spoke and there was things that existed. And in a sense, he's also speaking and creating a reality. Essentially, when a person makes a vow, they are changing God's creation. They are going into what already exists of God's creation and they're modifying and changing it because they're creating a reality of something now. Something's going to happen. Something's going to exist until that vow is completed. God says, if you're going to speak into and change my creation, I am going to hold you to it. And there's some very specific rules with regard, spiritual rules, with regard to what we call vows. Now, maybe you're familiar with the New Testament passage where the Messiah specifically said, don't be so quick, you know, to swear to this or swear to that. Rather, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Because the fact is that if you speak a vow, you know, you are putting yourself under the judgment of God and he will hold you to that because you've changed his creation. He will hold you to it until you complete it. You are free to make a vow. However, there are rules and restrictions to it. In this particular case, if a man makes a vow and he speaks it, it's a binding obligation. He must do it. In fact, it is of the level as though it was a commandment that came from Torah. He must do it. And a man that would prohibit him from doing it would be at at odds with the Lord. The Lord says, if you speak it, you're going to do it. Because if you said it, I will hold you to it. Basic things that we understand about spiritual maturity in men. Don't speak it unless you intend to do it. If you speak it, then do it. And in this particular case, this is the weight that is given to a vow. Now, there's some additional instruction that comes with the instruction of vows. Let me read on for you. Verse 3. Also, if a woman makes a vow to the Lord and binds herself by an obligation in her father's house in her youth, and her father hears her vow and her obligation by which she bound herself, and her father says nothing to her, then all her vows shall stand, and every obligation by which she has bound herself shall stand. Very interesting verse, because that is the moment, by the way, brethren, when you see a marriage ceremony, when you see the woman make the vow to her husband. You remember who escorted her in in a traditional wedding? The father. And the man who's leading the ceremony asks who gives this woman to be wed. And the father gives some sort of response. I or her family or her mother and I. And then he witnesses her vow. 
And if he does not object in that day, then her vow stands. So we look for the blessing of the father. We look for him to be present at the wedding ceremony for him to hear and not object to be in agreement with the vow. Therefore, there's the transference of her under her father's authority to now her husband's authority and that in the right and proper way. The scripture gives us that the father has this authority. In verse 5, it reads on, But if her father should forbid her on the day he hears of it, none of her vows or her obligations by which she has bound herself shall stand. And the Lord will forgive her because her father had forbidden her. However, if she should marry while under her vows or the rash statement of her lips by which she has bound herself and her husband hears of it and says nothing to her on the day he hears it, then her vows shall stand and her obligations by which she was bound herself shall stand. On the day she gets married, if her husband hears of a vow that she had made, he can nullify it. He can relieve her of that responsibility. Verse 8, but if on the day her husband hears of it, he forbids her, then he shall annul her vow, which she is under, and the rash statement of her lips by which she has bound herself, and the Lord will forgive her. But the vow of a widow or of a divorced woman, everything by which she has bound herself, shall stand against her. However, if she bowed in her husband's house or bound herself by an obligation with an oath, and her husband heard it but said nothing to her and did not forbid her, then all her vows shall stand, and every obligation by which she is bound herself shall stand. But if her husband indeed annuls them on the day he hears them, then whatever proceeds out of her lips concerning her vows or concerning the obligation of herself shall not stand. Her husband has annulled them, and the Lord will forgive her. Every vow and every binding oath to humble herself, her husband may confirm it or her husband may annul it. But if her husband indeed says nothing to her from the day to day, then he confirms all her vows or all her obligations which are on her. He has confirmed them because he has said nothing to her on the day that he heard them. But if he indeed indeed annuls them after he has heard them, then he shall bear her guilt. These are the statutes which the Lord commanded Moses as between a man and his wife, between a father and his daughter, while she is in her youth and in her father's house. The reason I wanted to take a little extra time, you know, to cover this is because one of the issues that is in our modern society has to do with rights and authorities with regard to the father, the head of the household, with regard to the husband and his duties and responsibilities. Essentially, what God has done is given to the father, is given to the husband, the ability, the authority from God, that if his wife or his daughter were to make a mistake by which she would make with the spoken word, that there is a provision, there is a way for her to be relieved of the mistake so that she's not bound by her words. But in the case of a man, there's no one to annul them. The man's word will stick and the Lord will hold him to it. But the father bears responsibility. The reason we, uh, I wanted to point this out is because this is God's theocratic order. This is the way God establishes from way back in Genesis 1. Way back when he made woman out of the man and he said to the woman, the man shall have rule over you, specifically to provide for you, to protect 
and to provide. This is one of the areas where man has this authority. The reason I mention to you, because this is a modern-day issue going on, particularly in the church, and we just don't know what to do with it because we don't know the instruction of Moses. We don't listen. In 1 Corinthians 14, it says a very interesting thing there, where Paul's giving instruction, and he says, I forbid that a woman should speak in the church. Let her be silent. Let her instead go to her house and ask her husband, and let her do it as the law says. That's exactly what it says in 1 Corinthians 14. Let her do it as the law says. That's a clear place where the New Testament is referring to the teaching of Moses, and it says, follow the teaching of Moses. And I wanted you to see what Moses actually is talking about. Moses is talking about vows. Moses is not talking about other manners of speech, such as a promise or such as a request, or to explain. Those are other different types of speeches. Vows are a very specific type of speech where it would commit and bound someone, where you're altering the reality where people live in. And in the case, vows are made very intensely, you know, from the heart. Sometimes vows are made in great anger, in great uh, wrath, And that's especially when you would need a husband or a father to protect. Upon hearing something that was said with such energy, maybe that needs to be rendered and taken care of carefully. Essentially, it sets this basic order. The husband is the head of the home. The father is over the children. And so in the case of the congregation where we have come and we have assembled together, we are not individual members here. In fact, in this particular congregation, you won't find a little form that says sign up as a member. What you come into this congregation as, you come in as a family. And this congregation, assortment of families, we recognize the father, the head of your family. And if we need to speak with your family about a matter, we will go to the father or to the husband and we will speak with him. If there's an issue of any type, we'll go and speak with him. And he can come and speak with us in the same manner. One of the things that I emphatically teach in proper congregational life, and quite honestly, uh, when we come and assemble here together, it's really no different than the courtesies if we were in individual homes. Can you imagine, let's say that you you are in your home and you've invited some guests over to your home, and let's say that... uh, your wife uh, sets the table in a particular way, and some man, or for that matter, some woman, from outside your home were to come in and try to correct your wife, you know, in your home. Can you imagine the offense? You know, some guy comes walking and he starts chastising your wife in your house. I mean, you, you can imagine the emotion of, that's not right. Well, why would it be right here in the house of God? Why is it that we think because you walked out of your own individual house that those rules of courtesy of how families are to be treated suddenly got changed? Well, part of it has to do with our Western culture. Part of it in our Western culture is we're all a bunch of Democrats. We're in a democracy. Excuse me, some of us are Republicans, but we're all in a democracy. And in a democracy, everybody has a vote. Well, that's true in a democracy, but that doesn't work in a theocracy. In a theocracy, God is in charge. 
And God has appointed families, and there's an order in families. And when we come together into the house of God, it's to the theocratic principles that we're working to. Each family comes as an individual family. And therefore, the way we conduct ourselves is from family to family. Even the elders of the congregation have no authority to speak down into the individual members of any family. Each wife and child is under the protection of the leadership of the head of that household. In the case of a single parent family, such as a widow or a a wife who has children, she has that role and that responsibility. And if we have issue there, then we go to the head of the family and we speak with them. And so if it works that way in how we communicate and how we work with one another, then it also works in the same way coming back. It's not proper for one of the wives within a family to usurp the authority of her husband and speak to others in the congregation or to usurp the authority of another man in the congregation. And so this is the point of what Paul is trying to make. And it all stems, it all stems from this basic instruction in Torah about the basic order of family. The basic order and the rule and authority that a husband and a father has over the members of his family. And the way it is given is not so much to block them on all forms of speech. No, on those forms of speech in particular that have to do with adjusting God's creation. Other forms of speech should all be done in love. In other words, if we see an issue with a member of a family, we need to go to the head of that family and speak with him about that. Why? Because he's the one who loves that person more than anyone else here. Who's the one who knows best how to instruct? They've been doing it for a long time. They understand the other person. So they would be best qualified to render correction or reproof or instruction to that person in the family. Certainly not me or any other elder or any other person. You know, we're not qualified. We don't know that person. But within the family unit, the head of the family has that responsibility, and therefore it is their proper place for them to be contacted and allow them to take care of the issue and the correction, whatever may may need to be done. In the case of the wife, instead of going off and questioning the other guy, what she should do is question her husband let her husband go ask. Because he will remember the protocol. He will remember, go up and treat with and ask with respect. Be wise, you know, about how we bring the subject up. Let's not go and just accuse someone of doing wrong. Let's ask a question and gain new information so that we can answer. And so to ensure that the protocol is done correctly and properly. This is this uh, teaching about vows is a very, very important section that sets standards of communication amongst one another. Um, particularly in congregational life. The next part of our uh, portion uh, moves into the story uh, about Israel now doing battle with the Midianites. The Midianites, if you recall from last week's portion, are the ones who dispatched their daughters down at the Council of Balaam to um, get involved with the sons of Israel. Balaam had given the council that if you want to destroy Israel, you're probably not going to do it successfully with swords and so forth. The better way to do it is send your daughters down there, let them get hooked up with those sons, 
Let them invite them over to your feast, your customs, your ways. And uh, basically, they'll lose their distinctiveness. They'll marry in, and they'll be all assimilated. And now, last portion, and the two weeks ago, we had the story of Balak, and we have this elaborate story of Balak, the destroyer, hiring Balaam to come in. And in last week's portion, I told you in advance about what Balaam's real counsel was. It wasn't about the cursing. Balaam couldn't curse. All he could do was bless. But then I told you this background story. Where did I get that background story from? Well, it comes from this portion. In other words, reading the whole context of all of the text about it, we're able to surmise. And if you will, look with me now in Numbers chapter 31. When Moses comes up to the 12,000 after they've defeated Midian, and in the course of their battle, instead of destroying all of the people, what the soldiers of Israel did was they slew the men, but they brought the women. They brought the women and the children back. And Moses gets upset with them and says, what are you doing? Don't you recall it was the women who were dispatched over to marry you that is the heir of Balaam? Don't you remember that was, it wasn't the men who were dispatched It was the women who were dispatched. What are you doing? And if you'll follow along with me. In Numbers 31 and verse 13, it says, And Moses and Eliezer the priest and all the leaders of the congregation went out to meet them outside the camp. And Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the captains of thousands and captains of hundreds who had come from service in the war. And Moses said to them, Have you spared all the women Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. Now, therefore, kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who has known man intimately. But all the girls who have not known man intimately spare for yourselves. Now, it sounds kind of harsh. Can I be honest with you about that? You know, it sounds like Moses is like, some kind of mass murder, you know, counseling the 12,000 to go do it. And it has to do with this particular thing. These people almost caused the entire death to the nation of Israel. This wasn't one or two that went down. This was a whole group of people who came in with the intended purpose to do as much harm to Israel as could possibly done. And as a result the Lord gave instruction that vengeance was to be taken on the Midianites. And Moses specifically gathered up a thousand men from each tribe, the best of the best, to go get them. And they did. They went like commandos. I mean, they went right through them. They didn't do the job. They get down there and they start dinking, start having second thoughts about what in the world are we doing here? You know what this is a little bit like? This is a little bit like the consternation you should have if the Lord decides to have the day of the Lord judgment. And he decides that he's going to wipe out his enemies. And then in the midst of the battle, at the end of the day, you look back and there's still a whole bunch of demons left. And there's a whole bunch of murders and thieves and evil people. And he's decided that he doesn't it's okay for them to go ahead and join in with the kingdom. We'll go ahead and bring them in too. I mean, it's absolutely bizarre. You wouldn't think that. 
You know, the Lord surely would not do that. So that's basically the bizarre situation that's happening here. Israel, what are you doing? These are the very people who intentionally went out to kill you, to do as much harm to you as possible. You were tricked by them. And now, when it was finally time to do justice to them, now you have second thoughts about the justice. That's the problem with man's idea of justice. You get a clear decision, and then you don't implement it. So why did we make the decision to begin with? You know, if God, why did God say, go and destroy the Midianites for what they've done? And then we don't do it. It will get us in trouble every time. The Lord gives you direction, tells you what to do, then you don't carry it out. You start getting second thoughts, you start getting self-righteous, think that you're, you know, you got a better way. And all it does is buy trouble. It buys more trouble. The, the, right now, modern Israel is in the land, is having all manner of difficulty because they would not listen to the instruction of the Lord. He said, make no agreement with the inhabitants of the land. That if you do, they will be like a stick in your eye, a thorn in your side. They will hurt you, irritate you, and make your life miserable. And right now in the land of Israel, would you like to live in a neighborhood where you walk down the block that your wife gets shot? Your children are being killed when they're on the playground by snipers? Talk about being pierced in the side. He knows better. He knows who the enemy is. And if he says that's the enemy and that's the way you deal with it, then deal with it. Especially if he's gone through all of the other stuff and he's rendered his judgment. Remember last week we talked about Phineas. The Lord did render the judgment. Moses had implemented it, but they were hesitating to carry out the word of the Lord. And then Phineas did act on the word of the Lord. It came as a big shock that we would actually do what the Lord says. By the way, the same shocking thing will happen today. If you actually have a person who actually does what the Lord says, you'll look vastly different from the other people in the world, especially people who claim to be following the Lord. I've always particularly enjoyed, this is an excellent example of something that we learn about the Torah in the way the Torah is presented to us. You may have heard uh, me share in times past, I believe the Torah, the instructions of Moses, the, the basic teaching, first five books, I call it the living Torah. There's a cycle to it just like the cycle of life. There's beginning portions, and, and this Shabbat is these portions, Matot, Maseh. And there are lessons and principles that are in here that we will find happen throughout the week. And in the course of this week, I've seen exa- several examples that are following after the teaching portions that are in these portions. And it's like the Lord was prepping me all week long about what this passage is about. Many of you have heard me in the times past share this same concept on many teachings. In fact, one brother was asking me earlier, well, Monty, which part do you know to emphasize? What part do you teach? And I said, well, the Lord's kind of prepping me all week long with what's going on with people, what's going on with my life, what what do I see happening spiritually with other people. And then I see the relevance of those issues to what the Torah is teaching. The Lord's trying to show me by events, by the Scripture, you know, the truths of those things. There's a very interesting statement 
made by Torah teachers about this little veiled reference to the Council of Balaam. Now, I gave a teaching a couple of weeks ago all about the teaching of Balaam that just came from a few of these phrases, including this, the council through the council of Balaam, verse 16. And up in Revelation 2, it specifically warns the last day church. I have this against you. There's some who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Very simple little reference. Just this little reference to it. And, and the Torah, although it has very few words about it, there's a great meaning, a great understanding. The expression where the Torah will barely mention something, but later on elaborates on it, this expression is made of the Torah. The words of the Torah are poor in their place and rich elsewhere. The words of the Torah are poor in their place and rich elsewhere. There's a wonderful principle there. It works kind of like this. Everybody has a Bible, you know, especially here in America. And there are many Torah scrolls. The words are in their place. And you can go and you open your Bible. And right now we've got our scriptures open. We're looking and, you know, we don't really see the great riches of what the Torah has to offer by just looking at the words in their place. In fact, they look like any words. So they're kind of poor in their place. They're lost in the shuffle with all of the different words and books and so forth. But they're rich elsewhere. Where are they rich? In here. It's when we take the words and the teaching of the Torah and we transfer it into here. Then it becomes rich and full of great value. Full of great value in here. There are three great things that the that the the world will tell you that a man can get wisdom strength or valor and wealth if you have great wisdom why you can be very successful in this world if you have a great strength or valor you can be very successful in this world if you have great wealth You can basically buy anything you want. And I know a lot of men, and you've known a lot of men, they're just average guys, but they somehow got one of those three things or a couple of those things, and they're highly successful in the world. But the same men, the same men also can lose it. Somehow they can gain it easy, they can lose it easy as well. And a lot of people in this world are looking for success in life, the blessing, all the good things that life can be. They see the examples of others, and they're out to get them. You know, basically, if you last long enough, one of those things will eventually come to you in some form or fashion. Either some inheritance will come your way, a little wealth, or you'll finally grow up and get strong enough, you'll have enough strength, or you'll finally last long enough that you'll finally give a good answer to some question for somebody, and somebody will say, well, you have some wisdom and treat you accordingly. I always tell everybody that I'm at that awkward age of my life. I've lost the strength of my youth, and I'm still waiting on the wisdom of the ages, you know, to come to me. I'm somewhere in the middle. But the fact is, is that all men recognize these three great qualities. And the reason why we can't retain them is because we didn't get them from the Lord. 
We got them temporarily from the world. When I'm talking about the riches of the Torah, I'm talking about all of those things of wisdom and strength and valor and wealth, but they come from God, which cannot, you can't lose. If you gain it from the Lord, you have it. One of the things that I've uh, noticed in my own personal life, I can meet lots of people and I'll be greeting them, I'll shake their hand, I'll get their name. You know what? I can't remember their names. I mean, I, I want to. I, you know, I want to be a personable fellow and meet people, and they're very friendly to me, and I, I want to remember their name, but you know, for the life of me, I, you know, I meet him, I, I'll forget their name right after I walk away, and I can't do it. How is it that I can't remember the person I just met, but I can remember a piece of scripture I memorized when I was 20 years old? How is that possible? Or how is it that I can remember the scripture that I go and commit myself to memorize, but I can't remember the name of the guy I just met that morning? Well, because the things really of value come from the Lord. The things that are temporal we have in our experience of life. There's another lesson that will come in this portion that deals with this. But I want this, this is illustrated for us uh, very emphatically in this next segment of this portion. And it has to do with once the battle with the Midianites is over with, why the inheritances and the booty has been divided up, and they're getting ready to cross over the River Jordan, and the tribes Reuben and Gad have gained many cattle and much livestock. And they take a look at the east side of the Jordan, and there's some valley that runs there along the Jordan River on the, the Jordan side. And they said, boy, this is great for us. And so the issue came up that the tribes of, of, uh, of Reuben and Gad went to Moses and said, we don't want to cross over the River Jordan. We want to stay over here because this is a great piece of ground for us. So turn with me now, and you'll see how this ties in with what we just discussed in Numbers chapter 32. Now the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad had an exceedingly large number of livestock. So when they saw the land of Yasser and the land of Gilead, that it was indeed a place suitable for livestock. The sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben came and spoke to Moses and to Eliezer the priest and to the leaders of the congregation, saying, now there's a whole series of names there, and the land which the Lord conquered before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. And they said, if we have found favor in your sight, let the land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. But Moses said to the sons of Gad and to the sons of Reuben, Shall your brothers go to war while you yourselves are here? Now why are you discouraging the sons of Israel from crossing over into the land which the Lord has given them? This is what your fathers did when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. It's 40 years later, but 40 years before the children of Israel at Kadesh Barnea went in, spied the land out and said, Oh, it's scary. We don't want to go there. And as a result, that generation was judged in the wilderness. Here's Reuben and Gad 40 years later. And they're saying, hey, we kind of like it here where we're at. We don't want to cross over the Jordan. We, we don't want to go into the land. And besides that, you, you can be guaranteed there's other people over there and there's going to be a war. And Moses thinks that's what Reuben and Gad are doing. But Reuben and Gad are not quite doing that. They're not saying we don't want to be a part of it. In fact, what follows here is an offer 
on the part of Reuben and Gad that says, look, allow us to build some things here and we'll park our sheep, our livestock, and our families and our children here and we'll send our men to war over with Israel and we'll help them get the land and as soon as they all have their inheritance, then we'll return back to our land and how about that? That's what we would call in Latin form kind of a quid pro quo. If you've ever heard that expression, a quid pro quo. You do this, we'll do that. You know, you let us have this, we'll send the guys over and help you get yours. Quid pro quo. And the way that, that Reuben and Gad describe their offer, there's a whole nother teaching about this. In fact, Moses will agree to this plan to allow them to do it. But there's some very subtle things that are really what the issue is about, and they tie back into what we were talking about before. If you'll look with me, let me show you how Reuben and Gad make their proposal. Numbers chapter 32 and verse 16. Listen to what, it's, what they say. Then they came near to him and they said, We will build here sheepfolds for our livestock and city, cities for our little ones. What's wrong with that? Their priorities are way out of kilter. They're supposed to be building cities for the little ones and then sheepfolds for their sheep. But instead, Reuben and Gad are in it for the gain. And so their priorities are on how they make an income and a living. That's where their priorities are at. Moses will respond to this by agreeing to their quid pro quo to go over and help Israel. In other words, they're saying, we'll go help our brethren, but uh, what we want to do is build for our sheep, and then we'll also build for our children. And if you'll notice the way Moses agrees to the proposal and the way he states the proposal must be done is actually in verse 24. Build yourself cities for your little ones and sheepfolds for your sheep and do what you have promised. Get your priorities right. You guys are here to provide for your family, to provide for your little ones, not they are there and you're really here to be in the sheep business. You know what? In this world, this is a major spiritual issue with a lot of men. Which is the priority? Do I go to my job to be a success in my job? And oh, by the way, after I'm a success in my job, I'll also plan on building a home and being successful as a father in a home. Or and my real purpose is to establish a house and a home and to raise up my little ones and I'm going to use a job to assist me to do that. Years ago, <laughs> when I worked in the business world, it was one of those days in the company when they sent out the human resources people. You know, the big team of human resources people came out to the branch office and they wanted to have a little employee meeting and, and they brought this uh, very nice lady in, human resources specialist, probably had a grad degree in human resources management. And she came out and assembled all of us guys, all of the staff there in the conference room. And she decided to get up on the chalkboard and, and she said, uh, I want us to list, and she says, there are seven things that motivate uh, employees, and I want us to go through and discuss them, and, uh, and I could tell what this was going to be. And I'm sure they were going to say, like, job satisfaction and, 
ego and a sense of accomplishment and financial rewards and so forth. And uh, in any cases, she was starting to do this thing, and I kind of knew which way she was going to go with it. I, I just faintly made eye contact with her, but I turned away very quickly so that without eye contact, she won't call on me and I won't be participant uh, in this discussion. But, you know, she caught my eye, she caught my eye, and, and, and I knew I was pinned. And sure enough, you know, because I was one of the leaders in the group, she said, well, Monty, uh, what, what do you think of the seven things that motivate an employee here at the workplace? And I said, please, please don't ask me. Please. Ask the other guys. You know, dialogue. I understand what you're trying to do, and I don't want to be opposed to what you're trying to accomplish. If you are here to do your job, please go right ahead with these guys and do it. And I'm, I'm not the guy you need to ask this. She says, well, that intrigued her. She says, oh, no, no, you're exactly the kind of person. I, you know, you have some opinions on this. I want to hear what your opinions are. And so the whole room, about 50 in the room or so, all turned, yeah, Monty, what do, what do you got to say? I said, you're asking me what are the seven things that motivate me in the workplace? And they said, yeah, yeah, what are, what are the seven things? And I said, the seven things that motivate me in the workplace are money, 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 and money. That's what motivates me. You pay me money, you give them job satisfaction and stroke their ego, you give me that money because I'm going to take that money and I'm going to go back and do good to my family. I am here for my family, not for you, not for their ego or my ego. I said, you give me the money and you give them ego. And all the other guys said, hey, wait a minute, we want the money too. <laughs> Blew the whole presentation for the human resources people. And the case of Gad, Reuben and Gad, they have made a fundamental mistake in that, that somehow they got the idea that the number of livestock was really the important thing. That's what really motivated them. Let's have a lot of cattle. Let's have a lot of sheep. And you know what? You know, I'll tell you what. Let's pick this piece of thing because this is the best one for the cattle. I don't know if it's the best one for my family, but it's the best one for cattle. And first priority, let's build corrals and barns for them. Let's not build cities and houses for our children. Way out of priority. Way out of priority. What Moses is trying to give us some basic construction. Hey, fellas. <laughs> hey, guys. You and I are here for the benefit of our families, first priority. We use the job and we use our careers and our work to meet that goal, not the other way around. My own personal testimony to you is that my own father didn't understand this. My father desperately wanted to be a successful man. I think my father was a genius. I had men tell me so. I had other men, grown men, who knew him business-wise, thought he was. But because he got the priority out of sequence, I don't think he was satisfied with the results. I don't think he was happy in life. I think he struggled. I think he was under a lot of stress. I think he had great difficulty. His children did well. But he didn't get the credit for it. 
because he was off working, trying to do the best he could. And we have a classic case here of a lot of times, guys, and I say this in a spiritual sense to people, we have the idea that the things out here in the world, the material things, the physical things uh, out here in the world, that's where it's really at. This is, if you're going to have a life, you're going to go out here in this world, you're going to do these things out here. I have news for you. You get your priorities fouled up. You want peace, you want joy, you want contentment, you want long life and health. The riches are here. All those things are to support this. You remember uh, Fiddler on the Roof? Tevier, I wish I were a rich man. You know why he said he wanted to be a rich man? So he could study all day long. So he could study Torah all day long. That's where the riches are at, brethren. I tell people I have the greatest job in the world. I got to work every day. Have the greatest boss I've ever had in my life. Don't make a lot of money. But then my retirement program is clear out of this world. And I work with the nicest people in the world, people that believe in God. And you know what? When I go to work and I want to work hard, I get to open up my Bible and study it just as hard and as long as I want. I tell you, there is no better job in this world. Because I found out the riches are right here. The things that encourage and lift up my soul and and make me live where, where I really enjoy life. And I've, I find that my life is absolutely stimulated beyond anything that exists in this present world by understanding the wisdom, the knowledge, the, 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 the things of the Lord. Learning about them, coming to terms with them. And being at peace with them. In this particular case, Reuben and Gad were making choices. They would rather be not in the land, but someplace less than the land. And that they would have their priorities to be things and work and business rather than the heritage of their fathers and passing that down to their sons. That their heritage was not the first party. They don't realize it's the riches that they have uh, from that. Men who are into personal gain and not into God's purposes will not provide even for their own children. They won't provide for their children. In their effort to get gain, even their children will suffer. Even they will suffer. They will literally rob from themselves and from their children to go after the other game. And while they're pursuing the game, their children go without. The building of barns. If that becomes a priority, it is a huge mistake. Personal relationships are way more important. And there are men who make those mistakes, like Reuben and Gad did. I want to read to you a passage that is part of the commentary on this portion. And I'm reading from um, 
this is uh, Nehama Leibowitz, which is her commentary on the studies in Bamidbar, the book of Numbers. And for those who might be listening on the tape, I'm reading from page 385. Listen to this particular teaching that kind of summarizes this whole point. Two wise men arose in this world, one in Israel and one among the Gentiles. Ahi Tophel in Israel. Now, Ahi Tophel was the wise advisor to King David, who when his son Absalom came to usurp King David, this counselor shifted allegiances and went after Absalom and as a result lost his life. He spoke against King David. Ahitophel in Israel and Balaam among the nations of the world. And both of them were destroyed from the world. Similarly, two strong men arose in the world, Samson in Israel and Goliath from among the Gentiles. And both of them were destroyed from the world. Likewise, two rich men arose in the world, one in Israel and one among the Gentiles. Korah in Israel and Haman among the Gentiles. And both of them were destroyed from the world. Why? Because their gifts emanated not from the Holy One, blessed be he, but they snatched it for themselves. Likewise, in the case of the children of Reuben and Gad, you find it that they were rich, possessing large numbers of cattle, but they loved their money and settled outside the land of Israel. Consequently, they were the first of all the tribes to go into exile, as is borne out by the text, and he carried them away, even the Reubenites and Gadites and half the tribe of Manasseh. Chronicles 5.26. What brought it on them? The fact that they separated themselves from their brethren because of their possessions. Whence can we infer from this? From what is written in the Torah. Now the children of Reuben had much cattle. Riches and possessions will wipe you out spiritually every bit as powerful as unbelief and disobedience can. You must be wise and turn all of it over to the Lord because you cannot manage it properly. And there's a host of men who have lived in the world who, although they had strength, they had valor, they had wisdom, they had wealth, didn't make it. Because it wasn't surrendered to the Lord. Because they really weren't committed as a first priority to the Lord's missions, to the Lord's priorities. Money and and the issue of dealing with brethren has been the source of much consternation. In this last week, and this goes to show you how the Lord was showing me this lesson. I received an email this week. I won't mention their specific name, but I will mention that they were from the state of Texas. They told a sad story. They're believers. Their family, their parents were believers. And there was some land. And the father and the mother said to the son and the daughter, come, build a house, be settled, live near us. And they came to the land. And it was explained to him that the land was part of the inheritance and that the land would ultimately be theirs, and that, but they were going to live together. They would share together. And so they built a whole house and a home, and they'd lived there for many years. And now the parents have decided 
that the value of the property has increased significantly. And now there's a beautiful home on it. So they've decided to sell and evict the son and the daughter and their family out of the home, the home they've built. They wrote me and they asked me, what counsel would I offer? I didn't have any particular counsel for them. I wasn't going to get into, well, you should have got a deed or, you know, I, I, I didn't want to get into, well, you can't really trust your, even your own parents nowadays. <laughs> you know, that people like Reuben and Gad, they're in for the money to the harm of others, even their own brother, even their own children. And at the same time, our, some brethren that we have in our own congregation, they moved on to a piece of property owned by their parents. Essentially of very little value. In fact, it was condemned. But they've worked hard and they've built a nice home and they've remodeled it and put in new things. And it's very habitable, a very pleasant place. In fact, the parent came over, took a look at it and said, oh my goodness, this is looking good. And to their chagrin said, I'm going to sell it. Sell their home right out from under them, where they had had an understanding that they would be there permanently. And now there's even no communication going on between the children and the parent. Reuben and Gad got the wrong priorities to the harm of their own children because they're after gain. So with all of those kinds of things coming in, it's like it's pretty obvious as to what the Lord's lesson was about this week. And hopefully in covering this, why we can um, help us to understand these kinds of things happen, to set in some safeguards against it, and maybe we should learn a lesson. Let's not treat our children this way. Let's not do to them what they didn't. Now turn with me to Numbers chapter 33. And this I'm just going to briefly uh, touch on, and it will be the conclusion of our teaching. In Numbers chapter 33, we come to a very fascinating piece of the Torah in which we have a whole series of verses, <clears throat> about 36 in number specifically. Actually, it's more than that. In which there's just a dry list of the journeys of the camping places of where Israel camped while they were in the wilderness experience. It begins in chapter 33. Verse 1, now these are the journeys or the stages of the sons of Israel by which they came out from the land of Egypt by their armies under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. And Moses recorded their starting places according to their journeys by the command of the Lord. These are their journeys according to their starting places. And they journeyed from Ramesses in the first month on the 15th day of the first month on the next day after was the Passover of the sons of Israel started out boldly in the sight of all the Egyptians. So they began on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The seven days they traveled was Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was the day after the Passover. And they went from Ramesses to a first place they camped was called Sukkot. Sukkot means places of tents or huts. And that's the first place they did when they left the cities of Egypt was they set up tents and huts. And what follows 
are not the names of cities or geographical locations, but rather things that happened to them, specific events that transpired. In the course of the first year that Israel was on that 40-year journey, they were in 14 different locations. And then in the course of the 38 years that followed after that, they were in 20 locations. And finally, in the last year they were in the wilderness, they were in eight different locations. This has been a perplexing passage of Scripture for the sages of Israel as to explaining what is the great value, why in the world did Moses put this in the Scripture. If you look at Psalms 19, it says specifically of the Torah that the Torah enlightens the eyes, rejoices the heart, and restoreth the soul. Just what is it about this list of places that we can barely pronounce, let alone understand the meaning of, just what is it that enlightens the eyes, rejoices the heart, and restores the soul? And some of the sages of Israel have literally given up trying to make sense out of this. Some have said, look, it can't be for some historical geography. That can't be the real purpose. There's nothing enlightening about historical geography. Take my word on this. Nothing that restores your soul other than drive you nuts. The, um, it can't be uh, because of uh, just technical accuracy. In other words, some have tried to argue, well, he gave these particular places so that we could confirm. Well, you know, If you're going to believe it, you're going to believe it. And if you're not going to believe it, you're not going to believe it. This list isn't going to help you. It's just a list. So there's been a, always been a huge question on the part of the brethren as to exactly what this was really about. Why did Moses record this? Because it says specifically, review the verse with me again. Verse 2, And Moses recorded their starting places according to their journeys by the command of the Lord, and these are their journeys according to their starting places. First thing that I want you to take note of, it was by the command of the Lord. So the Lord has a purpose in this. The question is, what is God's purpose in listing these places? That would be part of the real answer to what's going on here. There can only be one conclusion on that. Not the things of the past, but things of the future. Remember our passages about vows? Speaking of the future. And in the context of the spiritual deeper theme of what's going on, there's something in the future here. And emphasizing the confirmation of that is the way Moses says, and did you catch the double phrase in the verse? Anytime you see the scripture, particularly Torah, repeat, and it, the, the Torah is not redundant. The Torah is never redundant. It's a dead giveaway clue that that's where the spiritual wisdom is at. Now listen to the redundancy. And Moses recorded their starting places. Did you see that? Starting places. And at the end of the phrase, according to their starting places. So what is it about starting places? How can you have 42 different starting places? Because most people would look at this and say, we were leaving Egypt. Moses and the Lord wasn't leaving Egypt. They were going to the promised land. So every time they broke camp, they were starting for the promised land. It can be summarized this way. Let's say that 
a father and a son are leaving their house and they're going to go to grandmother's house. And as along the way, I'm sure you've heard your children do this. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? You know, you ever heard that expression when you're on a trip? Are we there yet? You know, you know, frequently on the trip, are we there yet? Well, what if you had the son who was constantly asking, how far are we from home now? How far are we from home now? Eventually, after a while, the father would say, son, what you're supposed to be asking is how soon it will be to grandma's house. And this is what Moses is trying to get us to take note of something. This was a journey to something, not from something. You and I are on a big journey. We're not on a journey from Egypt. We're on a journey to the promised land. And every day you get up and you're on a journey to that place. You're not on a journey from the past. You're going somewhere. It's in a very positive emphasis to look forward to, into the future. And when we get into the Great Tribulation, which will be a 42-month period, modeled after the 42 camping places, because these are really a prophetic picture of that group that will go through the Great Tribulation. The one thing that we need to remember when we're going through the Great Tribulation is not how long has it been since the Great Tribulation began, how long have we lasted? The question is, how soon will we be to the kingdom? And the emphasis should be on we're starting each day and we're that much closer. How, how close are we to the kingdom? And that is one of the ways that will endure to the end. You know, there's no great honor in the Great Tribulation. I made it three years and five months and 29 days. No, the great honor of that will be I made it to the kingdom, all the way to the kingdom. Now, there's much more I could go into. Time doesn't permit me uh, this evening, but there will be other studies in which that we'll get into this. But the one item that I would want to tell you is about a great miracle that took place here. They went into a place. There was no water. There was no food. There was no Walmarts. You couldn't go get a new pair of shoes out there or a new outfit. Their clothes did not wear out. There was no food for their livestock. Nobody went hungry. Everybody was taken care of. And in the midst of all of that, that the Lord did that great miracle, there was really something else that was really going on. What God was trying to teach them, and I think what God is trying to teach us in all of the issues that we see in our life, is that the real life, the real life is not in bread. It's not in water and having a faucet. The real life is in the words, the word of the Lord. That's where life is at. Those other things are essentials that you need, that you've got to have a little of along the way. But if you want to have a life, if you want the riches of life, the enjoyment of life, the reason for life, then you need to go to the words of the author of life, the creator of life. You need to get some of his kind of food, Thus, we have these huge biblical themes, like, for example, in Deuteronomy. Why did I suffer the children of Israel to go hungry in the wilderness? Why did I make them thirsty in the wilderness? 
and then turn around and give them water out of a rock and manna. Why do they do that? So that they would learn that a man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, a man shall live. Now, you and I have the opportunity to learn this lesson and not have to suffer hunger or thirst. Wouldn't it be best if we would learn the lesson as a result of their example? Wouldn't it be better to do it that way? Or do you prefer to suffer hunger and thirst so you can learn this spiritual lesson? They didn't believe because of the manna and the water from the rock. They were desperate. They just had to have that. They believed because they made a decision to hear the voice of God and to follow his words. And the same issue is before us in our lives. For what reason do we live? For what reason do we get up in the morning? For what reason will we continue to go from one day to the next? You know why people kill themselves? They have no hope. Because today they're not starting out for anything. All they did was end. They came from some place, but they have no hope and no future. You want to go into depression? Stop looking for the future. Don't, have, don't taste the hope, you know, that is before us. And the Lord is the one who is our hope. He's the one who has a promised kingdom and a promised land for us in the future. So that's the one that we should be pursuing. We should be starting out every time for the kingdom. We should be starting out every day for the kingdom. Not how long have I come. And from where did I come from? But rather, where am I going to? And the Lord will provide along the way whatever is needed. One of the great lessons that I think the Lord has been teaching me in the last several years is that, and I think all of us had a little taste of this uh, back with Y2K and, and other interesting issues that we had happening in current events and several of us prepared and so forth. You know what? I think the real lesson to learn about preparation is the Lord's going to take care of us. So why don't we just believe in his words? Why don't we just eat those words and live those words? That's life. That's really what it's all about. And if we could learn that now before the great tribulation comes, I think we'd be a lot better off when those days do come. But if you're not going to do it now in a time of peace, then what makes you think you're going to do it when it's in the time of war? I submit to you, if you can't do it now, you won't be doing it then when it's tough, you know, to do it. The rest of the other passages, the rest of these other things, I don't have time to really go into, but let me just uh, kind of summarize them for you very quickly. The number of cities that were planned for in Israel was 42 and six cities of refuge which is reminiscent of the words of Yeshua when he said in Matthew 10, speaking of the last days, when they said, when they oppress you in one city, flee to the next. I tell you, you shall not flee to all the cities of Israel before the Son of Man returns. How many cities in Israel? 42. How many camping places did they camp in the wilderness? 42. How many months in the Great Tribulation? 42. 
There's a great parallel here and a great prophetic message for the last generation. The people that are supposed to learn all the previous lessons of the past so they might be equipped and prepared for the days of the end. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Torah portion. Thank you, Lord, for the story of Israel, their mistakes. Lord, we would pray and ask that we would learn from the lessons of the past, that it wouldn't have to be repeated for us. Lord, that we would learn in our midst that pursuing gain, material gain in the world, is no success. Particularly when it's the pursuit of gain to the harm of children. There's no success. Lord, I would pray for those who've had to deal with these issues this week. I lift them up to you, Lord. Knowing that you'll be the provider. You'll be the the real strength of life. And Lord, that you'd encourage uh, those brethren. I lift up those that are in our congregation who are still trying to learn some of these lessons, Lord. Trying to learn the lessons about how do we live and cooperate with one another, how do we fellowship with one another, and Lord, how we get other things as a higher priority, like barns and things for livestock instead of for people and in fellowship with brethren. Lord, I'd ask for your mercies and your kindnesses, even as you showed to Reuben and Gad, even as you provided for them. I thank you, Lord, for this congregation. I thank you for every person who comes, the families. And I ask, Lord, that you'd use the Torah, the words of the Torah, to strengthen them and encourage them and to bring alive some of the living waters out of the rock form the true bread from heaven, the manna, and let them eat of it. And Lord, that from that, that you would quench their thirst and satisfy their hunger for truth and righteousness, and that they would sense it and know it, and they would like the taste of it and want to pursue you and your words. Thank you, Lord, for our congregation and for all who come to fellowship. The joy of our fellowship together as brethren. Thank you, Lord, for your spirit. And thank you, Lord, especially for you, that you forgive us and you look down with kindness upon us. And Lord, we'll be mindful to remember that we are just your humble servants, just going on a journey to the promised land. And we thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. For more information about Lion and Lamb Ministries, call our office at 405-447-4429. Our address is Post Office Box 720 720- 968 Norman, Oklahoma, 73070. Our web address is www.lionlam.net. Thank you.